0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com and by WNYC, which has an exciting new podcast on Puerto Rico called La Brega.
1: Puerto Rico is part of the United States, and its history, as well as the realities of Puerto Rican life today, remain largely untold. A group of Boricua journalists have come together to create an anthology of stories called La Brega, stories about the Puerto Rican experience a new podcast series from WNYC Studios and Futuro Studios, available in English and Spanish. Subscribe to La Brega, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. We are called upon to love our jobs at a time when work has for so many become less lovable than ever. As Sarah Jaffe explains, this is no accident. The idea that you should do what you love and you'll never work another day in your life is a dominant fantasy that keeps today's neoliberal capitalist order afloat It keeps you thinking that the solution to your low-wage service job is to keep looking for that dream job or to focus on that five-to-nine side hustle instead of organizing with your coworkers to take on the boss. It keeps you thinking that because you do creative work, it's okay that you work long hours and for little pay because if you're doing what you love, what do you have to complain about? It tells you that if you're a teacher or a nurse or a nonprofit worker whose job is to serve people, that you organizing for your rights is a betrayal of those people who you serve. The myth that we should love our jobs obscures the fact that only solidarity and collective action can set us free. Today, I'm talking to Sarah Jaffe about her new book, Work Won't Love You Back, how devotion to our jobs keeps us exploited, exhausted, and alone. Before we get rolling, if you like this podcast, support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. We do not paywall anything so that everyone can listen. That is very important to us, and it only works because those of you who can afford to contribute do so. Depending on how much you contribute, we have left-wing books and also mugs and tote bags to send you as a thank you. Currently, I am hoarding Dig funds to spend a bunch of money on another season of Antibody, our socialist This American Life type thing that we put out last year for the first time and which was very, very good. Also, join the Dig Book Club and talk to authors of books discussed here on The Dig on Zoom. Next up is Paolo Garballo on his excellent book, The Digital Party. Visit The Dig Radio slash dig hyphen book hyphen club we generally also secure discount codes for these books okay here is sarah jaffe a reporting fellow at the tight media center and the author of necessary trouble americans in revolt today we're talking about her new book work won't love you back how devotion to our jobs keeps us exploited exhausted and alone Sarah Jaffe, welcome back to The Dig.
1: Does this make me your most frequent guest, Dan?
0: (laughs) You might have to take this up with Aziz.
1: I think what we have to do is do a joint episode one day.
0: Your new book is a meditation on the injunction that we love our work. Or if our work is just plain unlovable, to hustle hard enough to find that dream job. Because, as they say, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. The idea has just become such common sense but you write that it wasn't always that way at all it used to be widely accepted that work indeed sucked and that you did it for money and for the fewest hours possible what happened
1: the short version is that patriarchy and neoliberalism happened but the much longer explanation would take about 3 hours so the short version is that i trace the story of the labor of love becoming this sort of widely spread expectation that has leaked into all of these different kinds of work to the shift away from industrial labor in countries like the U.S. So as factory employment goes down, what takes its place? Well, a lot more of the kind of service work where you're expected to sort of paste on a smile and uh, at least pretend to be having a good time. So, you know, we have an economy that's now been filled in with service jobs, with healthcare jobs, with all sorts of things that require sort of face-to-face interaction with a person, a student, a client, a customer, or whatever. And that work is extremely gendered labor, right? Work that is based on some level on the work that women are expected to be doing in the home for free. And that expectation has long shaped the work that women do when they do leave the home to go to work. And so as more and more women go into the workforce, those expectations sort of follow them and then end up rubbing off on everyone, whether or not you are a woman, and even whether or not you're in a gendered field. And then the other side of that story is that the jobs that we're all supposed to sort of dream about lust after long for, whatever. Those are the the kind of creative jobs, the exciting jobs. And that I trace back to this sort of history of of the narrative around artists and the way that we expect artists to be sort of super magical, unique geniuses who just do the art no matter what, whether they're starving, cutting off their own ear, locked in a garret, whatever it is that you might be doing, right? The narrative is that that too is not really work. And so if you have that creative job, which somehow has now crept into everything, you know, from actually being an artist to being a computer programmer, those jobs are also somehow exciting and fun and not really work.
0: You write about Luke Boltansky and Eve Chiapello, who famously wrote that any given era of capitalism, that it corresponds to a particular spirit of capitalism to justify itself. Explain this idea of a spirit of capitalism, why these spirits change over time, and particularly why it is and how it is that today's dominant spirit this labor of love ethic how it emerged and and what sort of problem for capitalism it solved
1: that book is great partly because they did the work of wading through the management literature so like
0: <laughs> someone's got to do it
1: <laughs> no no but really like i tell my book through the stories of working people so i'm telling the story of people who've experienced the sort of pressure to love their job They are telling the story through the management literature, which is like through how people are taught to motivate workers. It's really, really fascinating. It's a great book. It's very long. So Boltanski and Chapello, and they were writing this book in the 1990s. So this is before Facebook. Say And yet they predicted so many of the things that that Facebook would come to exacerbate in terms of everybody being networked and all of our jobs being fundamentally unstable and the value of sort of flexibility and excitement and creativity, all of these things that were already underway in the 1990s. But the spirit of capitalism, right, they they get this from Max Weber, who wrote famously The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And, you know, at the time that Weber was writing, the Protestant ethic did not expect you to like your job. In fact, you were almost sort of supposed to not like it. You worked to be good rather than to enjoy yourself. Because the Protestant ethic essentially played on people's insecurity about going to heaven. That, like, you're supposedly predestined to either go to heaven or go to hell, and there wasn't really much you could do about it, but you should work really hard anyway to make it look like you're the kind of person who's going to heaven, and then maybe it would happen? Like, it, predestination is really weird. Sorry. It's really strange.
0: Yeah, because it's, like, fatalistic, yeah. but then, weirdly, it but
1: also motivating. tricks
0: people into thinking that they can kind of yeah. do stuff to make themselves get into heaven. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, right. It's, it's very strange, right? Because it is at some level, it's just saying like, work really hard and you might be screwed anyway, but cool, you'll have worked hard. So that was the, the Ben Franklin kind of ethos, right? You're just going to be industrious and whatever. And that worked for a while. And then you get the sort of industrial ethic, right? Which is what they write about the sort of Fordist compromise kind of way of thinking about work, which is like, yeah, the work probably sucks. But... You get paid, you have a union contract, you get weekends off, and your real life is what happens outside of the job, and because of the unions, you have conditions that are fairly decent when you're not at the job, and conditions that are okay on the job. It's probably not gonna kill you. And that lasts up until the 1970s, and then there is a crisis in profits, which many of your previous guests have explained, so I'm not going to. So capital, in order to wring more profits out of the same kind of production processes, manages to relocate them. Laws are changed in order to allow capital to go wherever the hell it wants, et cetera, et cetera. And neoliberalism comes in in the first government in Chile under Pinochet and then spreads to the US, the UK, and um, Margaret Thatcher, who is just a wonderful person to tell this story through because Margaret Thatcher really just says everything out loud. So, you know, she would say things like economics are the method and the object is to change the soul. And like, really, really, she said that that's a quote. So Margaret Thatcher is being honest about the thing that she is doing, which is trying to remake society so that people believe in capitalism because they had started to really not believe in capitalism. And, that's the, the other part of the story that Woltanski and Chapello tell, which is the story of the movements against capitalism. And they argue that, you know, you need the spirit of capitalism because it needs justification, because it sucks for a lot of people, right? You look around and like right now, you know, Texas is, is a giant frozen block of ice without a power grid. And people have to be convinced somehow to believe that this system that is killing people left and right is somehow good, So those justifications respond to critique. Essentially, the labor of love is what we get when capital internalized, or maybe synthesized is a better word, the critiques of capitalism from the 1960s and 1970s, where people were saying, like, factory jobs are boring, they suck, they're dull, they might still kill you, and we don't want to do this for 40 years of our lives. And so instead... We lose all of the security of the Fortis bargain. And we get like, sure, you get exciting jobs. Well, a few of us get exciting jobs. Mostly what we get is Uber and Lyft and Airbnb and service jobs, right? And so the story that we're told is that if you work hard enough, you'll be able to get access to some sort of lovable work. But really what happens is that most of us should have shittier and shittier working conditions.
0: Margaret Thatcher was... Right, in some way, to point to the soul, because the issue that the this new spirit of capitalism, this labor of love ideology, responding to is really the kind of soul crushing nature of the work. And you, you write, "quote The concept of alienation isn't about your feelings; it's about whether you have the power to decide where and how hard you will work, and whether you will control the thing you make or the service you provide." And so. This notion that you should love work comes about at a time when work is for many less and less lovable than ever, and when more work than ever is incidentally care work. How does this love labor ideology respond to this deep desire to escape alienation? That, ironically, is precisely and definitionally what cannot be escaped. Within the wage labor relationship,
1: yeah, I mean the the you know that line there is kind of my my play on you know Ben Shapiro's facts don't care about your feelings He's like <laughs> it's true facts don't care about your feelings. Um, it's just that he usually doesn't have the facts, and you know there are, there are different parts of Marx that one can draw on certainly, but like the definition of alienation that I find most useful is this one where it's it's not actually about like work is better or worse based on like how we feel about it but actually it's about how much power we have and how much control we have like the alienation at bottom is about the fact that like you don't control the thing that you make so you go to work in an auto factory and you don't get to drive the car that you helped make home at the end of the day and in fact it's been broken down into tiny little individualized pieces so you don't even really make the car you drive a couple of bolts on the car as it goes past you on an assembly line. But it's also true that if you are working at Walmart as a greeter, right, the ultimate job where it's just sort of affective labor, right, your job is just to smile at everybody and make sure they feel good. Well, they don't actually feel good about you. They end up feeling good about Walmart. You're being alienated from the the feeling that you have produced there and not like, oh my God, I'm alienated from my feelings. I feel weird about it, which is a part of of emotional labor as Arlie Russell Hochschild defines it but like in this case literally like that person doesn't know you human who is working as a walmart greeter they just know that walmart pays somebody to sit there and and wave at you as you come in so alienation is still present even if we're not producing something in that moment you are producing a feeling you're producing something that you know some people talk about like immaterial labor you're producing something immaterial which makes it hard to put a value on but it does in fact still create value for the company
0: It's remarkable because it shapes all sorts of jobs. If you have a job that is doing what you love, then you have nothing to complain about. You shouldn't even think of yourself as a worker at all. If you can't find a job that you can pour your heart into, your current job then isn't your true job. So instead of fighting to improve it, you've got to hustle harder to achieve that dream job. And I've got to bring up. That Dolly Parton Super Bowl. <laughs> ad. Working five to nine, you've got passion and a vision, cause it's hustling time, the only way to make a living. Gonna change your life. Which, as a piece of ideology, is I mean, it's a depressing and fucked up ad, but it is re- fascinatingly revealing. This notion that working five to nine, hustling after your soul sucking nine to five job, that that is the path to liberation and creative work, to transcending alienation. And there was another Super Bowl ad from Indeed that was also deeply creepy, which portrayed people searching for a job, uh, a very diverse cast of, 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 of noble working class and aspiring middle class characters searching for a tr- job being the most noble thing a human being can do and Indeed being there to help you do it. What What are these commercials trying to tell workers about how to think about work.
1: It's really fascinating, right? Like the Dolly Parton ad is so frustrating in part because like the original song that she's rewriting for this is like beloved by everyone, right? It's nine to five. And the thing about nine to five, which came out the year I was born, 1980, the movie was created because of a worker organization called nine to five, That was an organization of women who worked in the offices. I was literally just talking to Ellen Bravo, who was one of the organizers with 9to5 for an article that I'm working on. And we were talking about how 9to5 was an early sort of example of a worker center, right? It wasn't a union. It was where sort of the feminist movement and the labor movement came together. So you had women who were in these really sexualized office jobs, right, being secretaries and being treated like you know, Dolly Parton's character in the 9 to 5 movie, groped and grabbed by the creepy boss. So 9 to 5, the the organization did not actually do what they do in the 9 to 5 movie, which is kidnap their boss and get (laughs) him to concede and then take over their workplace and run it as a co-op. But the movie nevertheless was made with consultation from people who were involved in the actual organizing. So this is not just a song that was about how work sucks, which it is, but it's also like part of something that was rooted in real worker organizing. And now for it to be just like flipped and co-opted by friggin' Squarespace for a Super Bowl ad. So it's really frustrating on that level to see the way that the story we're told about work, the story we're telling through our culture about work is so different now. Where the story that 9 to 5 tells is that you get control over your work by organizing and possibly by kidnapping your boss. The story that 5 to 9 tells is you come home from your other job and then you work harder on your side hustle and maybe eventually, I don't know, you get to be Dolly Parton.
0: Yeah, and what's remarkable is that it it has in common with the original 9 to 5 in not contesting, in in fact, affirming that 9 to 5 jobs are shitty and soul-sucking It affirms that. But then it says the way you deal with that is not through fighting the boss, but getting your hustle on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the be your own boss shtick is really interesting, right? Luke Blatansky and Eve Chapello write about this way that like, be your own boss. It comes from a real realization that like having a boss sucks, right? It comes from this period of rejection of the bosses by, you know, Blatansky and Chapello are French. So like the movement in France in 1968, right, of, of students and workers, you know, like the French setting everything on fire like
0: you do. And French workers do legit kidnap bosses. They
1: do legit kidnap their bosses. It's true. So like the sort of synthesis of this rejection of the workplace, the boss, the relationship of power that your boss has over you What we get out of that is we get Uber, right? You get like, oh, you're your own boss now. You're an independent contractor. We get like Dan and I who are freelancers, right? Like we are in a situation where in order to sort of not have the boss, you give up all your security, which isn't – it doesn't have to be that way, you know? we interviewed an Uber driver for Belabored a few weeks ago who is part of Rideshare Drivers United in California and is fighting back against Prop 22. And they sell Prop 22, which sort of enshrined in California labor law, the second class status of of Uber and Lyft drivers. They sell it by saying, well, the drivers like the flexibility. And what this woman Nicole said was like, We can be flexible and still have decent conditions. We can be flexible and have like a minimum wage for drivers. You know, we can be flexible and still get benefits. These are not either or things. They're only either or because you've set them up that way. And so this whole be your own boss shtick, it's the thing that we are told is going to help us escape from alienation, right? Because like, you know, alienated labor is when your boss is profiting off of you. Well, if you're your own boss, except you're still not your own boss, you just have multiple bosses. Now you have the app and every single customer who gets to rate you on that service and the algorithm will just kick you off the service if your rating doesn't stay high enough. Or I have however many bosses that I have in editors who commission me and also my sort of endless ongoing fear that something I say in an interview or on Twitter or whatever will be the thing that makes sure that none of those people publish me. And then in five years, I'll just be reading my ideas through the lens of some other hack that they've hired who's finally come around to the thing I said five years ago, not that I'm bitter.
0: And some editors are great. Some, I think we can both say from experience, are assholes.
1: Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> editing is its own complicated kind of labor, but like... Yes. Even if you are your own boss, you know, my, my parents legit owned a small business for a lot of my life. What that actually meant was just that you're, you know, you're subject to all of the pressures of capitalism and you just have to keep working, right? Like it still doesn't allow you to exit the relationship because capitalism is totalizing like that.
0: You cite Josh Clover's analysis of how deindustrialization forced auto workers into this bizarre position of fighting to keep their plants open rather than the age old fight to work less for higher wages. And he calls it the affirmation trap. You write where you write, quote, labor is locked into the position of affirming its own exploitation under the guise of survival. I thought that was fascinating. How did this affirmation trap emerge? And then how did that lay the groundwork for this mythos of the labor of love?
1: Yeah, right. I mean, this is the end of the sort of Fordist Compromise that starts in the 70s as as the factories start to be packed up and and sent overseas. And what that does, right, is it puts the workers in Detroit, say, where the wages were high and the unions were strong, in competition with workers in like the south of the U.S., where the leaders are racist and the unions have little protection, or in South America, (laughs) in the global south. Right. In any part of the world where they can get labor for less and also, you know, get laxer environmental regulations. And that's a whole other part of the story. So this is a way to drive wages down. Right. So workers will say give back something in their contract in order to keep the plant open. And this is sort of a state of things now we've just internalized. But it was not around forever. You know, workers used to strike all the time, shut the factory down. When I talked to some of the workers at Lordstown, you know, they would just tell me about, like, wildcatting because, like, you know, the foreman yelled at some guy and they would all just walk off the job because they had the power to do that. But if the, the job can close, if the factory can just be shut and reopened somewhere else, then shutting the factory just sort of makes that happen faster. And we saw this in 2019, you know, we had two major strikes happen about the same time. And one was the GM strike that went on for a while. And part of one of their demands was trying to keep open some of these plants that GM was going to close, including that plant at Lordstown. And then there was the Chicago teachers strike. And the Chicago teachers won again right? They didn't win everything they wanted, but they got a much better contract. And the GM workers were out on strike for something like six weeks, and basically got the same deal that they would have before the strike. And the plants are still closed. The Lordstown plant is still closed. So a thing, and I I was talking about this with a friend this morning, because somebody was sort of tweeting that, you know, oh, everything would be better if unions just struck more. And it's like, that is both true and also not true. Because in some cases, you can't get what you want by shutting the, pit, the plant down if what what the boss wants to do is shut the plant down anyway.
0: You can't get what you want by being like, I'm not going to work if the boss is like, yes, I'm trying to have you not work.
1: Exactly. So in that case, right, the boss kind of gets what they want either way. Either the workers agree to concessions, which cuts their wages or cuts their health care benefits or accepts a two tier system where like the current workers will get to keep what they have, but the new workers will be hired for less, which was forced on the UAW during the 2008 financial crisis and the auto bailout. You either accept those things and the boss gets what he wants, which is cheaper labor, more exploitable labor, or the factory closes down, the boss reopens it somewhere else and he gets what he wants, which is cheaper more exploitable labor. So, this is a huge problem, right, for a production workers. And I wish I had better suggestions, but you know, teachers are able to win strikes because teachers can shut down the whole damn city. And as we're finding out right now during the pandemic, when like every friggin' columnist in the world is whining about how the schools need to reopen, we need the schools because the kids need somewhere to go because otherwise capital accumulation can't happen. So the teachers have leverage in a way that the factory workers no longer do. And this is an important fact to understand when you're just thinking, you know, about labor and left strategy right now. But it's also an important fact to understand when we think about The way that now we have to sort of perform gratitude for our jobs. So when the people who started work at Lordstown in 1966 got pissed off at the foreman for firing Jimmy, they could all walk off the job. They didn't have to tell the foreman, oh, my God, we're so grateful to have this job. They just walked out. Because what were they going to do? They couldn't run the factory without them. Well... You know, it doesn't work quite the same way. And so now the workers are put in this position of, of having to sort of talk about how much we want these jobs. We need to keep these jobs. It's really important to keep these jobs open. And so when I've gone and reported on some of these plant closures, you know, you start to ask people like, well, what was it actually like to work there? And they're like, It sucks. But you still have to sort of say, like, we're going to miss these jobs. We really need these jobs. You know, we we are desperate to keep this plant open. Please, DM, keep these jobs here.
0: You note that Amazon responded to my old friend and coworker, Emily Gundelsberger, to her wonderful book, On the Clock, which I discussed in the show, and I think I'll link to in the show notes because it's a good, good to pair with this one. Her book exposed how companies like Amazon treat their employees, and Amazon responded by pointing to their, quote, Passionate employees whose pride and commitment are what make the Amazon customer experience great. And the response at first blush seems like kind of a non sequitur to the findings she reported in her book. But Emily in her book did note that some of her coworkers did sort of embrace this ideology. One in particular, if I remember correctly, like embrace this ideology as a way to make themselves feel better about a very difficult. Situation. And I think this young woman co-worker of hers that she's writing about is like particularly good at her job. So is, is, is one reason this ideology is a successful one, because even as it undermines workers, it also in a narrow sense can offer like something to hold on to.
1: Yeah. I mean, and there's like, there's a long history of working class people finding pride in the thing that they do, even if they do not enjoy the thing itself, right? Like this is very true of the auto workers, for instance, there's a lot of pride in making something, even if the day-to-day process of making the thing probably kind of sucks. And so, you know, that is perfectly understandable, right? When you're doing something all day long, this is, this is your life. We only get one, you know, it makes perfect sense to be like, the thing I'm doing is worthwhile.
0: Yeah, work takes our time, and our time just happens to be our life. I think you quote someone who says... Selma
1: James, yeah.
0: Yes, it's a really nice quote.
1: So, right, so like it, it makes a whole lot of sense that you will feel that way. And, you know, the companies very much encourage you to feel pride in being good at it. And the flip side, of course, of feeling pride in being good at it is you get blamed if you're bad at it. And that's the way these things end up becoming a trap over and over again, right? I I talk about Adam Kotzko's book on neoliberalism's demons and the way that the system is set up to provide this illusion that we have choice in order to basically blame us always for choosing wrong. So if you work at the Amazon warehouse, you must have chosen that, Because you clearly, apparently, somehow had other choices that were better. Even though I was talking to a researcher today who found that in in one part of the UK, 58% of the job ads were for Amazon warehouses. So you don't have that much of a choice. But nevertheless, you chose to work at the Amazon warehouse. And therefore, if you are bad at working at the Amazon warehouse, if you get fired, you must have been bad at it. Then you deserve whatever happens to you. The system is set up to blame you. The system is set up to make you internalize and personalize everything. You know, and that's the thing that Margaret Thatcher was talking about with changing the soul, right? That the privatization of everything results, as Mark Fisher said, in vast privatization of stress, because we think we are told over and over again that everything we do is our choice and therefore our fault if it goes wrong.
0: On the one hand, you have this five to nine critique of the the drudgery of old fashioned jobs, the sort of jobs, in fact, that fewer and Fewer people have, and in fact, that coincides with this nostalgia for manufacturing jobs and the whole New Deal era that that was a part of. And you write, quote, those jobs had been good because they had been union jobs, not because workers' actual day-to-day experience was anything other than relentless and dehumanizing. Is this whole labor of love ideology is part of it that people are nostalgic, however, unconsciously for jobs that were in fact not at all lovable but good because they were union? Does our attachment to finding love in this brave new economy is it sort of a displaced affection for something that is lost but a lot of people can't quite name?
1: I mean I think it is absolutely like a very deep human need to have meaning in our lives. I mean this is why so many of us use so much of our five to nine time doing political organizing right? We are in part looking for meaning but like The nostalgia for the old job, I think in some ways, is nostalgia for a job where you didn't have to pretend to like it. Yeah. Right? And that's really gendered. That's the thing that I want to sort of make clear about this is, is, I wanted to write this book, I've wanted to write this book for years and years, and I knew it was about gendered labor, right? That that was a big part of it. And the various ways that that gender operates, because we'll eventually, I'm sure, get to the computer programmers and talk about the way that that labor is gendered. But when Trump got elected... And the big story was the carrier plant, right? The carrier plant was closing and Trump and Bernie had made a big deal of it. And the workers there had endorsed Bernie in the Democratic primary. And then when Hillary Clinton won, the union stayed neutral in the general election because a bunch of them were going to vote for Trump and did vote for Trump. Because Trump is is telling this nostalgic story about making America great again, bringing back the factory jobs, right? You don't have to sell your home. We're going to make sure these factories don't leave and we're going to bring them back. When I went to Lordstown in 2019, they all remembered Trump coming to Youngstown and saying, don't sell your home. These jobs aren't going anywhere. Well, they did. But Trump is selling the, this picture that we're going to go back to 1945, right? We're going to go back to the man in the factory, and the wife in the home, and the way things, you know, they think should be. And it's a very, very gendered picture. And I was thinking about this when I was listening to your episode with Joe Lowndes, right? Both of the ones you did with Joe, actually, the one with McKeel and then the one with Daniel Martinez-Hosung, right, where they were talking about the role of masculinity in the Trump phenomenon, right, and the role of masculinity in right-wing populism. And there is a real way in which, like, that masculinity is tied in with those kinds of jobs, And the way that your friend and mine, uh, Paola Grabato, was talking about the split between the working class and the, the sort of part of the working class that is in for right wing nostalgia politics is the sort of very masculine gendered manufacturing jobs, the things that sort of a lot of people still mistakenly think are the entirety of the working class, but really are one particular fraction of the working class that came with a set of protections and state subsidies of varying kinds that other parts of the working class never got. And so that ties in with this producerist narrative that I actually wrote about in my first book, which is that like, we only deserve to have things if we produce. And if we don't work, if we're not producing things, if we cannot point to the thing that we are producing, then we are parasites. And that you know, has reached its sort of zenith in the COVID moment with Lieutenant Governor What's-His-Face from Texas saying that, Mm -hmm. you know, grandma and grandpa just have to die so we can reopen the economy because grandma and grandpa are no longer productive. Or, you know, the defense of of people dying of COVID where people like they died with COVID, but they really died because they had this other underlying condition. This idea that people who have disabilities or pre-existing illnesses therefore are disposable, because they're less productive. like it, it gets genocidal really quick and really terrifyingly. But it all connects back to this idea of productivity and this idea of like very specific things that productivity is. And productivity is not caring for other people. It's not reproductive labor. It's like this sort of male-gendered production. And that's actually, among many other things, what's killing the planet.
0: Yeah, this, this whole gendered nostalgia for... Manufacturing continues to really shape our ideas about what sort of jobs are intrinsically good or intrinsically bad and relatedly what sort of jobs are kind of naturally union jobs but in reality good jobs in the golden so called golden age were not all in manufacturing and they weren't all performed by men. You write that by the 1940s, the retail wholesale and department store union represented 90,000 workers and the retail clerks international association represented another 200,000. And this was a lower union density than in other sectors, but still significant unions representing a lot of retail workers, many of them women. What made retail different then versus now and how did retail as a, as a career become, in the common sense, to just be prima facie absurd?
1: Um, so I really – I'm going to get deep into the retail stuff. But first, I just wanted to say also this idea that factory work is sort of naturally unionizable only dates back to the CIO, right? Mm-hmm. Before that, like your dudes in the AFL, in the craft unions – basically thought that industrial work was unorganizable and that that was sort of unskilled and it was just whatever and we don't have to worry about it. What we have to worry about is the skilled labor and the skilled trades that are done in these, you know, very specific craft unions.
0: Yeah, you can't organize those Slovaks and Italians into a union. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Yeah. And oh, my God, it was racist back then, too. It's just that different people were considered white back then. I mean, this is one of the reasons that I obsessively include hundreds of years of history in these books, right, is to point out that, like, These things that we sort of accept as natural are almost all the time, you know, historically contingent phenomena, whether that is the nuclear family or the industrial jobs. So anyway, retail. I also want to start out by saying that I just learned last night that the woman who I profile in my retail chapter, Anne-Marie Reinhart, um, passed away due to COVID. And I'm really fucking sad about it because Anne-Marie was a wonderful woman.
0: She was a longtime Toys R Us worker.
1: She worked there for over 30 years.
0: Who fought like hell to get the private equity company that bought Toys R Us to compensate workers as they were dismantling the company.
1: Yeah. And Anne-Marie, you know, she talked about that very thing that you were just saying, which is the idea that retail cannot be sort of a real job or a career. Um, That even her husband would say things like, maybe it's time to get a real job.
0: Which I would say most people under 50 would take that for granted today.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And she got her first job at Toys R Us when shortly after she'd had her first child and she took a seasonal job so she could have some extra money for Christmas presents. You know, I remember her saying, like, I always had my own money. I didn't like buying my husband Christmas presents with his money. I wanted to have my money so I could buy him his gifts. And they kept her on after the holidays. And then they kept her on and promoted her. And she became a supervisor. She worked in HR. She, when she wanted to move down south to be closer to her family, she moved from New York to North Carolina. And they let her move with the company and keep her New York wages in North Carolina, which is kind of a big deal because, like, we were just talking about moving from the north to the south in the U.S. for lower wages, right? And then private equity swoops in and buys Toys R Us. And she had plenty of bad experiences working at Toys R Us before private equity came in. But on the whole, you know, the company had been fairly good to her. And this was a career. She had good health insurance. You know, she had a pretty good salary. She was able to, you know, raise her kids. And the health insurance was something that her husband, who was a small business person, relied on because it was easier to use her health insurance than pay for his own. And this was 30 years of her life. And then the company gets destroyed. So, you know, but she would tell these stories of customers who came in who would talk about, like, oh, like one woman in front of Anne-Marie and some of her other employees said to her daughter, like, this is why you go to school, so you don't end up like them. And, you know, Anne-Marie was like, how dare you? I went to college. Half of my, you know, part-timers are in college right now. Like, What do you think
0: that is? There's this idea that some jobs are inherently bad, recognizable in the the classic warning to kids doing poorly in school that you don't want to end up flipping Flipping
1: burgers. Burgers. And
0: so the badness of the job appears in this mystified form as a reflection of workers' bad character, which in turn leads people to deny the reality that their job is their job.
1: And it's important to note, right, that the treatment of those workers and the wages paid to them has everything to do with who those workers are. And that is not because they're stupid. It is because they're women. It is because they're black. It is because they're immigrants. So the retail industry is entirely built around women because women were the ones doing the shopping and women were the ones doing the work. There's this really wonderful book called Countercultures about retail labor. In this book, she talks about the way that the retail shops were built around the needs of women. And women didn't like having men trying to sell things to them because the men would, surprise, surprise, often be kind of creepy. So instead, you had these stores that were staffed by women, but women weren't supposed to have real jobs because women's real job was supposed to be at home taking care of the children, being in the family. That was their real job. So when you went out and got an actual job, you weren't expected to be paid the same amount because the man was supposed to bring home the money that pays the bills and the wife or the daughter is working for some pin money a little money around the edges to buy herself a new hat. And so women don't have to be paid real money. This is also true by the way of teachers. When, you know, public schools in the US are first being instantiated, people realize like, oh, that's going to be expensive. It's going to be a whole bunch of people we have to hire. But if we hire girls to do it we don't have to pay them that much because again their fathers or their husbands but a lot of places literally wouldn't allow women to stay in the classroom once they got married so these stories that we tell about women's real job being in the home it still remains the reason why women are paid less and what happens with that well it turns out that when all the manufacturing jobs go away and the retail jobs are now the thing that is you know the largest single sector of the u.s. economy then men end up in those low-paid jobs. And it's not just teenagers, right? It's not just kids working at McDonald's. The average fast food employee, the last time I looked at a study of this, was 35 years old, probably has at least one kid. And the reality of this, right, is that, like, the conditions of these jobs are shaped by these expectations that are gendered and racialized. And that actually becomes the conditions of the broader working class. Because it turns out that when you carve out one kind of workers to have fewer rights than the rest, eventually capital is going to seek that lowest level, whether that is factory workers in Bangladesh or it is Uber drivers in California.
0: Walmart, of course, was the company that more than any other made women's retail work, or at least feminized retail work, what it is today. And you write that the company founded in the Ozarks developed its approach by learning from their employees. Quote, women taught Sam Walton what mattered to them, a sense of Christian service and a feeling that they were helping their community, which animated them more than their low wages did. How did Walton's observation of rural Christian women shape how he ran Walmart? And how did that in turn shape today's spirit of capitalism.
1: It's really interesting. I was just talking about this on Twitter today because Alex Press had observed something about Amazon, that now some public schools are teaching Amazon logistics. And it's like, oh, they, they got that from Walmart too, because Amazon's innovation is less an innovation in, in how to do anything and more just like ripping off Walmart and sort of brute forcing it bigger and meaner. So Sam Walton, despite his sort of folksy image, was not actually particularly religious. He was just a southern guy who had been a debt collector during the Great Depression. (laughs) Yep, that detail. And when you asked before about what happened to sort of those big numbers of unionized retail clerks, the answer in a lot of cases is Walmart. Walton sort of specifically invested in growing his retail empire in northwest Arkansas, not just because it's pretty, although it is really beautiful down there, but because it was mostly farm country. It was very much not union. And you could hire all of these women who had been, you know, farm wives. So they were used to working really hard and they were used to not getting paid for it. They were used to the money sort of coming in from the farm. So it made it easier to pay them as little as possible. And Sam Walton famously sort of opposed the minimum wage for retail workers, which only came in in the 1960s, by the way. Thank you, John F. Kennedy. The way that he instead kept these women happy was learning from them what was meaningful to them. And that was the service ethic, right? Bethany Morton documents this in, in really great detail, and I, I like... Cannot encourage people enough to read To Serve God in Walmart. It's such a great book. These women, they saw what they were doing in the store as an extension of caring about their community. And so Walmart went like, oh, people like this. This is great. That feeling that I was talking about of the Walmart greeter, right? That good feeling that those women were producing was being appropriated by Sam Walton. You know, I was listening to Marcus Gilroy Ware, who's a, a British media scholar on the Navara FM podcast a few weeks ago. And he said, affect is a source of surplus value. And I was like, damn it, why didn't I hear that before I finished my book so I could put it in? (laughs) Because it's such a great way of, of explaining it, right? That like, Sam Walton figured out how to create surplus value off of the good feeling that these women cared very much about creating for their community. And so that helped create Walmart's mega profits. Also, a lot of innovation along the supply chain that Amazon, like I said, has just basically ripped off. So the distribution center, before it was Amazon, it was Walmart. The whole just-in-time system that moved through very, very quickly was all based on Walmart's sort of innovation with things like the barcode and the container ship. So anyway, endless fascination with Walmart, it's the worst and also so important to understand the way the world we live now is shaped. And so, you know, as Walmart expands out of the Ozarks, it brings with it this sort of folksy vibe of, you know, Walmart is down home. It spreads across the South. You know, I grew up in, in Massachusetts in the suburbs of Boston, and I didn't see a Walmart until I moved to South Carolina when I was 16. And you know, now there's Walmarts everywhere. But in the, you know, mid to late 90s, it, it still hadn't gotten everywhere yet. But it had spread in these places, you know, it would sort of move in, put everybody else out of business with its low prices that it got by controlling the supply chain. And a lot of the places that it put out of business would be unionized grocery stores. The other stores end up having to lower their working conditions, again, to compete with Walmart, which has just sort of busted its way through. And Walmart has the control over the supply chain That the, you know, small neighborhood grocery store doesn't have. So the small neighborhood grocery store is paying twice as much maybe for the tube of toothpaste. So it can't sell it for the price that Walmart can sell it for. All it can do in order to squeeze money out of somewhere is try to cut labor costs. What are labor costs? Labor costs are humans. Um, it's like, I'm like Soylent Green is people, but like labor costs are people. <laughs> Every time you see like Bloomberg Businessweek being like such and such labor costs, it's like those are
0: humans. So this is the situation of work for so many women today, but rewinding a few decades for second wave feminists, liberal middle class second wave feminists entering the workplace was supposed to be liberating. Middle-class women did re-enter the workplace, though you do write that the story about women entering the workplace over the past half-century obscures that some working-class women had only just recently left the workplace because the New Deal order allowed their husbands to make enough to support them with the so-called family wage, while many others, particularly many black women, never left the wage workplace at all. But lo and behold, with second-wave feminism, many middle-class women do re-enter the workplace, but their husbands didn't put in shorter work hours or do more housework. Instead, you have households just increasing their net hours in the waged workplace, while working class women, again, many of whom had never left the workplace, performed domestic labor on middle class women's behalf so that they could go to work. What did the second wave feminist analysis miss about the nature of sexism and gender under capitalism in America?
1: Everything. Okay, that's
0: not fair. That's not
1: entirely fair. So the interesting thing about this also is like what I write about in the nonprofits chapter is that like the sort of history of, of nonprofit work is also a gendered history of labor, that that was what a lot of middle class women would do when they were not really supposed to get real jobs, right? And they weren't really allowed to like go into the professions. So you would get sort of these educated women who then are expected to get married and no longer work. What can they do? Well, they can do charity work which often ends up being exerting power over women who are further down the chain than them rather than exerting any power over men. Anyway, this is this is the story of middle class white women, basically, is always looking for power and
0: managing to exert it over other women. And that's not just like the the origins of nonprofits. You still see that, you know. Oh,
1: um, yes. (laughs) But yeah, so what Betty Friedan's, you know, feminine mystique argues is basically the same thing that workers in the 60s and 70s are saying about the factory, which is that this shit's boring and it sucks, you know, that it's work, essentially, So, you know, on one hand, you get this argument that the solution for that is allowing women to go do what men do, which is go get wages for a job that is presumably going to be intellectually stimulating and exciting and lovable and joyful. Yes, Betty Friedan has some things to answer for. Because you also had this other feminist movement that was happening at the same time. And it was the welfare rights movement. And it was Black women saying that... Actually, the work we're doing in the home is work, and it is actually incredibly important for the maintenance of the entire damn society, and so it is actually right and just that the state pays us a wage, i.e. welfare, aid to families with dependent children, for doing that work. And of course, you know, our buddy Bill Clinton came along and finished the job that Reagan and the rest of them started and, you know, reformed welfare out of existence. And now today, as we speak, mainstream liberals are in the New York Times going, oh, wait, maybe the best thing isn't always to force people into the wage workforce. And maybe the government should pay people to stay home with their kids.
0: And maybe this is a bit unfair to these currents of second wave feminism, but this idea that Entering the workplace would liberate women intersecting with neoliberalism, as you point out, leads to the welfare reform of 1996, which not only coerced poor mothers into low wage work, but also truly perversely into marriage.
1: Yeah, because the family is is a workplace and it is a site of discipline and control. So, right. There's all this marriage promotion money. I mean, you had Melinda Cooper on who explains this in much better detail than I can. But like the way that the family is the tool of discipline, again, Margaret Thatcher, because Margaret Thatcher explains it all. There's no such thing as society. There are individual men and women and there are families. And that is neoliberalism in a friggin' nutshell. There is no broader society. Therefore, there is no need for us to support Mothers in raising children or fathers or anybody of any gender who wants to raise children. That is your own damn fault and your own damn job and your individual men and women or families.
0: But not to pin all of neoliberalism on middle class second wave.
1: It is Margaret Thatcher's fault.
0: Feminism. Yeah, but there are significant shortcomings in the analysis that do sort of intersect in, in uncomfortable ways with neoliberalism. And as you point out, both the welfare rights movement and the wages for housework movement, they had both seen that, quote, neither the workplace nor the family was a site of freedom. How did these two visions go beyond liberal feminism in what they were seeing and proposing?
1: Yeah, I mean, most importantly, they were led by actual working class women. So they were understanding that if we say that the solution for women is to go into the workplace, most of them are not going to be Sheryl Sandberg's, Betty Friedan's. Most of them are going to be nannies, retail clerks, certified nursing assistants, maybe. Most of them are going to be making pretty low wages and doing work that is pretty similar to the work they're already doing in the home. right? And this is why the Wages for Housework movement had this analysis and applied it to all of these other kinds of waged work that these women were also doing while they were also doing housework. So they applied it to healthcare work. They applied it to teaching. They applied it to university teaching. They applied it to all of these other things that they might be doing. Selma James, who was married to CLR James, the famous Marxist theorist, in an interview somewhere, I can't remember exactly where it was, talks about how she came up with her ideas of our wages for housework, in part because, like, she was doing his typing and working on all of these papers that were then going out with his name on them. You know, like... How many people's wives did their, you know, copy edited and typed their manuscripts? There are all of these little ways in which their labor was subsumed into the world I do of think Thea
0: and uh, my acknowledgments.
1: And I assume you also read her things back. Yes. So this understanding that like putting people into the workplace, like for instance, right, when when welfare reform, Bill Clinton's welfare reform, comes through, what happens is an expansion in the size of the low-wage workforce. It ends up being essentially a subsidy to Walmart and McDonald's and everybody else who pays people minimum wage. Because expanding the size of the reserve army of labor, hello, basically allows us people to keep wages down, right? You're forcing people, once again, to work to take whatever job comes along. Well, when people are forced to take whatever job comes along, the company doesn't have to actually do a whole lot to entice people to work there. And, of course, they do still try to tell you that it's going to be really fun and exciting working there. And, you, you know, you see an Amazon billboard that says, you know, get a job delivering smiles. And personally, I want to die. But, you know, this whole system is set up to coerce labor, right? Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward famously write about this in, in regulating the poor and in poor people's movements, that the history of the sort of poor laws, right? Melinda Cooper brings this up. A whole bunch of people note that, like, Welfare reform was in the tradition of the poor laws, which come from the UK. Thank you. Essentially, they accepted that there would have to be some sort of relief for poor people because otherwise there would be revolutions. So you would have to have some sort of way, the same way that like when the COVID lockdown comes in and everybody's thrown out of work, the government, at least at first, kicked everybody some cash because they realized that you couldn't, in fact, just sort of tell everybody to go die. They've been slowly working their way up to telling us all to go die. And, you know, there were exceptions like you do in Texas. But, like, you have to provide some sort of support or else the poor will rise up and raise hell. That support is always sort of flexible. So you can take it away when you want people to go back into the workforce. Robin D.G. Kelly writes about this with the New Deal programs in the South, that, you know, when the farmers needed people to come pick the crops, the people who were running the local jobs programs would suddenly kick a bunch of black men, mostly, out of their you know their government subsidized job because then they would have to go do the farm labor this kind of of tradition of like sometimes we'll give it to you and sometimes we yank it away is all designed to just create cheaper labor i'm aziz rana and you're listening to the dig a great place for analysis about where we are how we got here and what can be done it's my favorite podcast and you can support it at patreon.com
0: This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers, developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly digjacobin. All lowercase. That's bit.ly slash dig Jacobin. B I T dot L Y Dig Jacobin. All lowercase. So when middle class women leave the home, all sorts of paid work inside the home has to be done. So ironically, there are a lot of people getting wages for housework. They're just very low wages and not at all what the wages for housework movement envisioned and whether it's housekeeping nannying or home care work for sick people or people with disabilities the fact that the work is being done in the home is still used to degrade their labor and deny them rights how does the venue of the work being done in the home continue to undermine these workers on the job so powerfully including very much in the law
1: Yeah, I mean, talk about home care work, right? Home care has been, again, a sort of thing that has moved in and out of government protections and government provision for decades. It's got its roots in the New Deal system. Jennifer Klein and Eileen Boris write about this. And again, it sort of starts as a a kind of make-work program during the Great Depression and then expands into our elder care system. So now it's one of the fastest-growing jobs in the country. And in 2014, I'm pretty sure, the Supreme Court and our buddy Samuel Alito, yeah, everybody's favorite justice, rule that it's not really work. And so therefore, home care workers' unions, of which there are plenty, were not entitled to the same kinds of protections that other unions did. Of course, this was also designed to be a stepping stone to the Janus case, which came along a couple years later. And we get so-called right-to-work conditions in the entire public sector because it turns out, once again, that whatever you do to the easiest workers to pick on, you will eventually try to do to everybody else. If I can convince people of no other reason why they should care about race, gender, immigration, whatever, it is because the conditions that are done to those workers are going to eventually be done to you. So if you cannot bring yourself to be woke in any other way, at least understand how capitalism works. Thanks. So... Home care work in this Harris v. Quinn decision is ruled partial employment, partial public employment. It's not real work because it takes place in the home and between people who have a familial caring re-
0: relationship. Sometimes home care relationship takes place between people with some sort of familial or personal relationship. Often it does not.
1: And even if it does, it is still once again work that society has an interest in making sure is performed. Unless, once again, we just want to get genocidal about people who are elderly or have disabilities, which we do not because that is horrifying.
0: Well, and this home care system unsurprisingly treats people, not only home care workers really poorly, but really underserves people who need home care to survive and live at home. Something that I've come to understand all too well recently as Thea has struggled to help my father-in-law secure assistance that he needs having to make him poor enough on paper to qualify, just a totally Byzantine
1: Yeah, because it's system. through Medicaid. And yeah, it's, it's really telling the way, you know, the same way that like the K-12 through teachers have talked about, you know, our working conditions or our students' learning conditions, the way that we don't value elderly people, people with disabilities in society because they are considered no longer or not productive. It also rubs off on the workers who take care of them. We don't really care about their conditions either because we don't value the entire situation that's going on there very much as a society because it's not really creating value for capital.
0: The idea that the shit job you have now is justifiable because your real dream job lies somewhere in the future is really powerfully evident in the case of un or underpaid internships, which Mm -hmm. I've had I presume you have had, you write, quote, working for free in order to one day get one of those jobs that are worth loving, the intern is the vehicle by which the conditions of contingency and subordination that are common to low-wage service work creep into an increasing number of classified vehicles. And ironically, you note, quote, the interns replace the very employees they hope to be. How was it that internships suddenly became so commonplace beginning in the 1990s alongside this, quote, strange kind of sense that one had to earn one's job? Even though, of course, the point of an internship is ostensibly to educate the intern.
1: Right. It turns out that when you call people students and not really workers, you can also screw them over in exciting and new ways. The internship is fascinating, right? Because it it's... It's not a type of work, but it is a type of work. And the reason that I I wrote the thing that you quoted there that I can't repeat back as beautifully as you just read it is that, you know, you get internships in all these different fields. But you put the intern in this position, you know, the sort of stereotypical thing an intern does is what? Fetch coffee. So basically, the intern is the eternal service worker, even when they're in a field that is very much not service work. But you still bring those conditions of service work into those workplaces. The intern has to be sort of perpetually grateful and perpetually willing to do whatever is asked, even though sometimes it's ridiculous. Like I had an internship at a magazine, and they asked me to clean and rearrange the boss's bookshelves. Wow. I'm learning, learning a whole lot. But the way that the internship spreads... It's interesting, right? Because the actual beginning of internships that we call internships was in the medical field. But it spreads into all of these other places, it spreads through politics.
0: And those medical internships also infamously suck. Hey, and are not good for anyone sucks. involved
1: especially in the US where we just like have nightmare conditions work like hundred hour weeks so it's just bonkers you got like the the union the committee of interns and residents like trying to bargain down to an 80 something hour week <laughs> yeah so anyway the tradition of the apprenticeship is the thing that everybody sort of talks about when they talk about internships but apprentices well that's got a whole different set of roots and the apprentice did sort of get adopted into the family why are we always talking about the family it turns out the family is responsible for so much of this stuff, or at least people like to try to replicate conditions of the family, which are often conditions of unpaid labor. So the internship is something that we do because we're in school, most likely, you're most likely getting school credit for it, and therefore you're supposed to be learning something, but you're supposed to be learning about the job. Except most of the time, what it actually ends up being is you're doing the labor that otherwise they would have to pay somebody to do. For instance, in the case of the, the Black Swan lawsuit, where interns on the set of the film Black Swan sued, saying that what they were doing was actually work. And this, it was um, a guy who was on his second career, and he had worked as, I believe, an accountant, and he wanted to go into film. So he takes this internship, and they have him doing the books. And he's like, wait a minute, I wanted to learn about film, not do your books for free. And so it's expanded into all sorts of ridiculous places. The Disney internship program is fascinating, right? Because like, what's the difference between an intern at Disney World and a paid staffer? Well, probably a union and a decent wage.
0: The, the Disney interns do like concessions, you write?
1: They do everything. They clean a vomit off of, you know, Magic Mountain or whatever. Thunder Mountain. Whatever.
0: <laughs> the only semi legit roller coaster at Disney World, as far all as right, I recall. Yeah,
1: you you know all about Disney World. i noted.
0: So, one way to make a shitty job appear to be a really great job is to insist that it's not really work. At all. And tech companies are a powerful case in point here because they don't just demand or suggest that workers should love their job, but they insist that they're doing you this favor by providing all of the social and leisure activities you might want in your non-job life. They, they're like, hey, we're providing that on the job. You're welcome. You never have to go home again, which is great. If you're ramping up exploitation of, say, video game programmers through this form of super overtime called crunching, why did this form of so-called plaber emerge in the tech industry? And how does it attempt to trick tech workers into thinking that they are the ones setting the terms of their own exploitation?
1: Yeah. I mean, the story of computer programming is fascinating, right? Because at first it was actually women's work. Yeah, It was considered sort of low skilled, kind of like typing, right? Which is in fact, also not low skilled work at all. But nevertheless, like everything else, when you assume that it is done by women, you treat it like crap. So when men finally get a clue that this is actually kind of interesting stuff that they might want to do, they do a whole lot of work to actually increase the prestige of this. Friend of your show, Astra Taylor and Joanne McNeil have a great piece about this called The Dads of Tech, which I, I just love that article so much. They sort of, you know, institute all these barriers to entry to suddenly make it men's labor. Um, it's very, very serious men's labor. And by the time you get around to, like, the creation of the internet, right, I read this book on the creation of the internet called, no joke, where wizards stay up late at night because that is, as they say, pure ideology because all of these super mega geniuses stayed up all night, all the time in order to make the internet, right, super mega geniuses who are just so uniquely brilliant that two of them came up with the exact same technology on opposite sides of the Atlantic Ocean at the same damn time, super uniquely brilliant though. Definitely no collaboration ever happening at all. All of these men, very, very serious, very unique, very brilliant, love their work so much they will do it all night long. So the the brilliant wizards who are staying up all night making the computers also figure out how to play games on this thing. (laughs) So sort of from the beginning you get people dicking around on the Internet while they are making the programs work, making the computers talk to each other, making the languages that allow computers to talk to each other. All of this stuff. And you get this idea that this is actually just fun. It's play. And I chose to write about video games in that chapter, both because, like, that's the epitome of of this idea that, like, computers are there for fun, right? And that you're working – you're making games, so it must be really fun to make games, right? Right. But also because, like, the games industry in particular is really known for this, the crunch time, as you were saying, this super, super overtime, where before the game is due to ship. Like, famously, I'm pretty sure it was Red Dead Redemption, where, like, you know, one of the executives of the company was bragging about everybody working 100-hour weeks before the game dropped. And, you know, of course, like, the employees are literally dropping. This is true in a lot of different parts of the tech industry, though, right? In Kate Lossie's book about working at Facebook, she writes about this... One programmer who started making Facebook video on his own time is, again, just kind of dicking around with the Internet. And then Zuckerberg finds out about it and announces it as a new Facebook feature at some sort of, you know, announcement thingy that Mark Zuckerberg does. So then these guys who have been making this thing on their own time as a form of fun are suddenly doing overtime. And the one guy has, like, an actual physical breakdown in order to get this thing out. And he says, like, it was like my body would never work again because he just worked so much to make this thing happen, this thing that he had started doing on his own time that then again gets appropriated by Daddy's Zuck. So at this point, these companies are sort of famous for having like all of these toys and gadgets and whatever, like Kate Lossie's book is called The Boy Kings because the entire sort of system at Facebook is set up around all of the needs and desires of basically like 20-something dudes. And I was talking about this with um, my friend and researcher who's quoted in this chapter, Julian Sarabo, who was, we were talking about, you know, the way these companies are set up. And basically, I was like, oh, so the company is like your wife. The company is just designed to sort of do everything for you so that you don't actually need someone else to take care of you. That Some researchers in the Harvard Business Review wrote about, like, the Internet of Stuff Your Mom Won't Do For You Anymore. If you look at all these apps, right, you can like hire somebody to come make your bed and deliver you your food and drive you from point A to point B.
0: And so the people making those apps are having the same things done for them by their employers.
1: Right. But the entire thing is basically set up on this idea that it will be, you know, a world for the needs of young boys who, like, aren't, you know, have moved out of mom's house and aren't yet married, which is an interesting inversion, actually, of the way that, you know, women's labor was was sort of allowed when they were in between being children and being married.
0: Which obviously excludes women, but it also excludes these boys growing up to be men who do something besides sit at their computers at work for extraordinarily long stretches of time.
1: Exactly. And in the games companies in particular, you know, the workers that I spoke with who are members of the Game Workers Branch of um, IWGB, the Independent Workers of Great Britain Union... They were saying that, like in games in particular, it's really common for people to leave very young, you know. But basically, when they want to get old enough to, like, maybe get married, maybe have a serious relationship, maybe have some kids, they leave games and move into some other part of the industry where the hours are less ridiculous and the pay is better.
0: Another thing that this soylent drinking antisocial boy genius programmer mythos obscures. Is that the industry still depends on an enormous old-fashioned manufacturing working class. It just happens to be in China. Does this labor of love mythology, generally speaking, does it not only serve to mystify the reality of people's jobs here in the U.S., but also to mystify the very nature of work today to make it seem far more immaterial and knowledge-based than it actually is by keeping us, when we hear the words tech worker from thinking of a Foxconn worker in Shenzhen assembling an iPhone?
1: By the way, there are interns at Foxconn. (laughs) No, absolutely. Absolutely. And also, like, it prevents us from thinking about the fact that, like, a lot of the things, again, Astro wrote a piece about photomation. It prevents us from thinking about the way that a lot of the things we assume are done by machines are actually still done by humans.
0: Or that things that we think are technological innovations like Uber are really just mystifications of labor casualization
1: right exactly like right the the same working conditions of uber were imposed on port truck drivers decades before uber figured out how to put it in an app the entire story is a story of magic happening and geniuses and brilliance and this is i you know i root this in the narrative that we tell about art this idea that that art is just created by some people who are magically talented and just gifted. And it's a thing that none of us could ever do, because we weren't, you know, I'm not Van Gogh. So Van Gogh clearly didn't have to practice. I'm not a computer programmer, therefore, I could never be because I'm a girl, right? This idea that these are things that are, are somehow natural attributes of certain people, obscures that that's bullshit and their skills. And that, that, you know, the same way that I have a certain set of skills at interviewing people and getting them to tell me things they maybe don't want to tell me, I could have instead spent the last 20 years of my life developing skills at at programming. You know, one of those is not necessarily attached to my boobs. It's just not a thing. That's not how this works. But we have created these, again, incredibly gendered narratives around who is good at what works, incredibly racialized narratives around who is good at what works. Who is bad at what work? Which workers around the globe therefore deserve to be the sort of manufacturing workers, right? With a story we tell ourselves about the global South, about the places where people are doing the manufacturing work, or that they are grateful for those jobs, right? It's just, they're just desperate because otherwise, you know, all any number of racist stories we tell ourselves about less developed countries that it doesn't have anything to do with histories of colonialism or anything.
0: And it's sort of like both sorts of workers exist, but the idea is that the immaterial, the so-called knowledge workers, that they're the real protagonists of this moment in history.
1: Right, exactly. As if those jobs aren't being outsourced too.
0: You just made references, but nothing is supposedly done more for its own sake than art, which is a very cute fairy tale, given that the world's richest people also happen to use art commodities as a major store of value. But art has this, you write that art's cult of individual genius It obscures the reality of an industry that treats most art workers like total shit, including workers who very much work in the style of workers in the conventionally understood sense, who fabricate the art that is put out under the name of famous and very rich so-called artists like Damien Hirst. You write, quote, art is perhaps the ultimate fetishized commodity where the work that went into creating it is almost entirely mystified, forgotten, wiped away. And What's more, it seems to me that like the art industry requires this massive lumpen artist tariot to make the society and culture of the art scene only to see the value of that scene appropriated by rich artists, galleries, museums, rich art buyers. And you write, quote, the artist becomes the ideal worker for the neoliberal age, just as neoliberalism made it harder and harder to succeed as an artist. Explain this contradictory dynamic of the simultaneous exaltation of of creative work of the creative class alongside the degradation of artists how does that play out
1: dan it's always dialectics <laughs> <laughs> you knew I was going to get that in here
0: somewhere, <laughs> didn't you?
1: Um, no, but but right. Like the story that we tell about artists is fascinating, right? I use Jackson Pollock in here because like, A, like I find Jackson Pollock endlessly annoying just as a mythological creature. He's terrible. He also tried to strangle David Alfaro Siqueiros once after a party, which is a story that entertains me because I love Siqueiros' art. I probably would have wanted to smack him if I actually knew him.
0: Well, he tried to kill Trotsky. So,
1: yeah, Siqueiros tried to kill Trotsky, but he had a reason for trying to kill Trotsky. I mean, presumably <laughs> Pollock had a reason were trying to strangle him too but this was not this was before he tried to kill Trotsky it was not a fight over the Marxist international anyway
0: <laughs> whatever
1: we can go down a rabbit hole about the Mexican muralists if you want to and in fact we should because like a lot of the inspiration for the programs that we got in the New Deal to support art came from revolutionary Mexico And I want to go back to the New Deal because the art programs of the New Deal actually gave us people like Jackson Pollock because they paid for people like him to do art. He was one of many famous artists that got jobs that were publicly subsidized jobs making art, sometimes teaching art. I'm really obsessed with this thing that I didn't really know about the New Deal art programs until I was researching this book, which is that in addition to paying artists to like make murals and photographs and all of those things that we probably, you, most listeners probably have heard of, they also funded community art centers so that everyone could not only look at art, but make art. And I think that's really important and we should bring it back. Um, Joe Biden, if you're bored and looking for some programs to dump some money into for some stimulus, can we consider community art centers? So Jackson Pollock gets his start at first an art workshop that is created by a bunch of communists from Mexico. And for when Siqueiros was in New York for a while, I'm making a communal art workshop because, you know, the the whole ideology of the Mexican muralist was that art is a communal project for the people by the people. And then Pollock, after the war, becomes our, you know, superstar who's splattering paint on canvases and and somehow this is magic and brilliant and contrasted to Soviet realism, which is terrible somehow. Because it's all ideology, always. So this idea that, like, art is this individual genius is, like, belied by the actual biography of so many of these, you know, supposedly magical geniuses that are actually supported by the state in many cases. And so I don't know how much a Jackson Pollock is worth right now, but probably a crap load of money and probably a lot of very rich people have them hanging around somewhere, mostly because they are a store of value and not because they really understand what the point of all that paint splattering was. I'm sorry if you like Jackson Pollock. I don't. He's easy as an example in this case because he's useful. Um, I am the furthest thing from an art critic. But like this story is that the art is made by the singular unique genius, even though it is actually in many cases not at all made by one person. When we think about some famous art projects in recent years, I'm I'm in Williamsburg about a thousand yards from where the Kara Walker Sugar Sphinx was. And the Sugar Sphinx was made by a team of workers working from drawings that Kara Walker made. But she didn't get in there with a mountain of sugar and carve it into a giant sugar sphinx, right? That was made by paid workers. It has her name on it and not anybody else's name on it. And we sort of obscure the way that it is actually made.
0: Yeah. You quote Molly Crabapple being like, why don't we just have credits like they have in films?
1: Right. Exactly. Like you watch a movie, you know, I I have a date with a friend for later this evening to watch a Pedro Almodovar movie. Um, And, you know, we call it a Pedro Almodovar movie, right? We call it, we name the director. Sometimes you might name the actor. You might see it, watch a Tom Cruise movie. Either way, there are hundreds of other people who worked in making those movies happen. And we know that. We still cite that, you know, the person who is most common. But at the end of the movie, there is a list of credits. And you could have that on the wall next to the sugar swings too, right? Here are all the people who worked on this. As a rule, you mostly don't. There are sometimes exceptions, like at Dia Beacon, the place where Richard Serra's um, torqued ellipses are, which are giant metal things. They're really cool, actually. Um, the thing on the wall does actually explain that they were made at a shipyard. And like that's how they manufacture these giant, you know, steel hulking things that you can walk through. But mostly that it's mystified. And this is is an excellent metaphor for how everything is mystified into capitalism. This is why I talk about commodity fetishism. So the art object becomes the thing that has value, but the value that it has is basically the name of the artist. The fame of the artist is the thing that that makes it art. And this is all why the the whole thing is fascinating and, and not really labor, because we don't really value the labor that goes into the process. We value... The artness of it, which is attached to it because of the name, and that name becomes art because a bunch of critics there also said it was art. And yeah, I really enjoyed writing that chapter because I just went down a lot of rabbit holes on stuff that I hadn't spent that much time writing about and thinking about before.
0: The art world seems remarkably similar to the athletic world, which you write about, where the huge salaries of the top players, obscure the even huger wealth of the owners and the fact that so many athletes invest so much only to earn very little or nothing at all for their labor. But the entire system and the wealth at the very top, depending on all those athletes, just like the artists who are making very nothing or very little. So I was thinking reading your book that for both art and sports, it seems like to change working conditions, you would also have to really fundamentally change the sectors as a whole. You would have to change who pays for art and who pays for sports, who's paid for performing art and sports and what audience the art and sports are made for. And that's hard to imagine without the state, for example, stepping in to decommodify these industries so that artists are paid by government to make art for the people, which, as you mentioned, happened has happened before in the United States and happens to a way to limited degree now and athletes would likewise i figure have to be paid by the government so that say the women's hockey players that you write about are paid to train and compete regardless of the size of their existing audience for women's hockey and corporations ability to make money off that audience it would just like for a just art and sports world to exist like can that happen without the state
1: i mean I think it could potentially happen without the state, but it certainly can't happen with capitalism, right? So um, there's different questions in in that whole something-something socialist theory of the state, which we definitely don't have time to do. Um, But, like, the... Soviet Union, for instance. Um, Famously, its athletes were really incredible, particularly at hockey. Um, They also had a really bad doping program, so we maybe (laughs) will, you know, (laughs) talk about... "Eh, There are some other things that were going on there. But we did have... Everybody watched that damn Queen's Gambit movie, right? And, like, the Soviets that she's playing against are playing chess from the time that they're, like, tiny children, and... This is because this is a publicly funded, supported program that, that, you know, makes the Soviets look like they're doing awesome at everything. Um, it was a weapon in the Cold War, but it was also, you know, state funded sports programs. You know, And there are plenty of things that were wrong with all of those programs that we can talk about on another episode. Ha ha. But the question of sort of how these systems are set up is sort of most perfectly encapsulated by the NCAA, right? Like college sports in the U.S., which are just the worst. twisted, um, Just absolutely so freaking exploitative. And the thing that I have been obsessed with since it happened, like the thing that like Joe Biden has done that I'm actually like, whoa, that was good is um, he fired the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board that Trump had put in, who was just a piece of shit. And then the guy that he put in his place as a temporary, sadly only temporary, because I actually think he's great, the person that, that is currently running the show, the person that is the temporary general counsel at the NLRB, is the person who wrote the decision that Northwestern football players were employees. So if we got... A decision from the NLRB as a whole, because the, the Trump NLRB overturned that decision. If we got a decision from the NLRB as a whole that college athletes are employees and not primarily students, that they are then entitled to form a union, say, that would be a seismic shift in the entire sports world. Because like even the pro sports are built on the backs of college programs. So the NBA and the NFL don't really have farm team systems the way like Major League Baseball does and hockey in Canada does. They rely on college sports. They rely on unpaid labor of people who are, you know, doing the same physically demanding and the case of a lot of these sports, incredibly dangerous and brain damaging sports for no pay at all. They don't even have the right or now they sort of have the right because people realized that this was growing increasingly untenable. Now they sort of have the right to profit off their own image. So this entire idea of sort of amateur athletics is so much hot garbage. Um, And we could potentially see it end soon, and that would be awesome. Um, And yeah, it would screw up a whole lot of people's profits. Good.
0: You write, quote, There is also real love in a family, which is precisely what makes it and its surrounding ideologies so sticky. The emotional support, care, sexual expression, and real love that exist within families are not figments of our imagination nor false consciousness, yet they are also shaped by a regime that exists to produce profits rather than human fulfillment. I think this is a really important point, and it seems like the same can be said for care work jobs like teaching or nursing, or also for creative jobs that people treat as vocations like art or scholarship or journalism or socialist podcasting. The idea that the family and all this work is about love is both real and it obscures the systems of domination and exploitation within which it's all embedded. So how can that love be recognized, but instead of then being a tool for oppression and mystification, instead be a springboard for liberation?
1: I mean, spoiler alert, I kind of think we have to destroy the nuclear family and the capitalist mode of production. I don't know if any of your listeners are going to be really shocked to hear this at the end of this interview. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it's very hard, right? Because you actually, like, these things are so deeply intertwined into everything that we do. Everything that we think, everything that we are, right? Like, I was raised in a nuclear family a lot of your listeners probably were, if they were raised outside of a nuclear family, that was probably treated as really weird, strange, problematic, and something you should probably fix. So, you know, the, the woman that I profile in the, the chapter about motherhood, um, her, she organized a group called Fallout Club, which is fallout from the nuclear family, um, which I just love so much. Like, these are, these are deep, deep, deeply embedded things. That it's really hard to break and people freak out when you say things like the nuclear family isn't natural, but the nuclear family isn't natural. Sorry, Henry Ford helped instantiate it. You should read Gramsci on this subject. It's great. Americanism and Fordism, highly recommended. The way that we shake loose of these things, and I think this more than ever after a year of COVID and being locked away from most of my friends who are the actual emotional support in my life, is we need connections beyond the family. We need solidarity. We need forms of love and relationship that are chosen, that are selected, but also that are sort of universal. You know, that, that, that Bernie line of fight for someone you don't know, but also, you know, Gabe Winant's line about fighting for someone that you know is how you win. Again, it's, it's all true. But I think we have to get beyond the Margaret Thatcher world of there are individual men and women and there are families. And that's, you know, that's what a union is. The union is making connections with people and saying an injury to one is an injury to all. And that's not just about the people that I'm blood related to.
0: And that's what left-led teachers unions bargaining for the common good is about.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that's why we should probably end here by talking about Karen Lewis, because we just lost Karen Lewis. And every time I talk about it, I start to cry because Karen was a superhero We're not supposed to say that because, you know, waiting for Superman is an anti-teacher piece of propaganda garbage.
0: And you've spent this interview demolishing geniuses. (laughs) And
1: Karen was so aware of the way that race and gender shape the expectations of both the students that they taught in the Chicago public schools and the people who taught them, people like her. She was so aware of the way that race and gender shaped people like Rama Manuel's responses to her. And she used that mercilessly because she was great at it. And she was just so loved by everyone. You know, I was on Kenzo Shibata's stream the other night and we talked about Karen and he just talked about how respected and loved she was across the district and how that made it so, you know, it was embedded in their organizing. The People trusted her that she cared about them and she was going to do the right thing for them. And that is just like, yeah, we should all be more like Karen, basically. And that solidarity that she and that union put into practice and are still doing today, that they're still fighting right now against being forced back into the schools and they've fought for safer conditions in the schools still. It's just, yeah, I I sort of couldn't come up with a better example of, of what the left should look to in order to actually break all these fucked-up systems.
0: Well, Sarah Jaffe, thank you very much. Thank you. Sarah Jaffe is a reporting fellow at the Tight Media Center and the author of Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. Her new book is Work Won't Love You Back, How devotion to our jobs keeps us exploited, exhausted, and alone. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that labor's realization is its objectification, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig is generally produced by Alex Lewis. But this episode was guest produced by the great Jesse Brenneman. Thank you. Thank you, Jesse. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. Same on iTunes. Please find us wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe. If it is on iTunes or wherever please also consider leaving us a nice review those reviews help introduce us to new listeners but what really and truly does that is you telling people that you know in real life about the show why you like it why you're listening to it please do make propaganda for us and please last but not least find us on patreon.com/thedig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going strong even a few bucks is huge